On this episode of Inside Music Cast, we'll take you inside the world of musician, composer, arranger, author, and founding member of Chicago and the California Transit Authority, Danny Serafin. Danny's career has spanned nearly five decades, and he's considered one of the greatest drummers in the rock and pop era. His jazz rock drumming style was a prominent piece to the Chicago sound for 23 years until his departure in 1990. Danny left music behind him for a 15-year period until he was pulled out of seclusion in 2005 to play a benefit gig. That was the spark that led him back into the music scene and to the creation of his new band, CTA, California Transit Authority, whose new album, Sacred Ground, was released in April 2013. Danny was also inspired to release a book, Street Player, My Chicago Story, which helped him make peace with his past and reflect on his tenure with Chicago. Inside Music Cast welcomes Danny Serafin. Hey, Danny, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rich. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Right after we confirmed our inter- interview with you, uh, I went home that very same night. I, I turned the lights down and I put on Chicago Transit Authority album, the mm-hmm. very first album, which was released 44 years ago. And I listened to it from start to finish. And, you know, I was I was thinking about it. I was actually born just a few months prior to the release of that album. And, and you know, growing up, my mom was the biggest Chicago fan I had known. <laughs> but, but when I closed my eyes and I really focused on what I was hearing that night, that album sounded as fresh and as exciting, you know, then as it probably did back in 69 when people, you know, first heard, you know, that Chicago sound. And I thought about how that first track introduction mm-hmm. it had to blow people's minds when they heard it for the first time because right. it still blows my mind every time i listen to it and so when you think back to that album now what are your memories from that time the, the feelings you know you were experiencing and the musical vibe your band was delivering oh god i mean you know it's just it's, it's like a, a brave new world you know it's like strangers in a strange land everything you can think of it was it was it was scary it was exciting it was you know scary and exciting and and, yeah. it's a, and you know for guys our age you know I was 21 years old I believe uh, yeah. yeah I would say that um, you say it's 44 years ago yeah yeah Jeez, wow. <laughs> okay, so 44 years ago so it was 20 21 years I was 21 years old I'm 40 I'm going to be 65 so yeah um, I, hate to, I hate to say my age but no, no sense lying about it I mean you know yeah um, and and it was it was you know uh, I remember the first track we recorded for that album was "Does Anybody Know What Time It Is?" And right. you know, Jimmy, our, our Jimmy Tanzway and Gersio, our producer, um, had gotten us with a really highly touted engineer by the name of Roy Halley. He's legendary. Roy Halley has, you know, done so many great records, produced and engineered. And he, you know, we were very scared. I was, I was so green, and it was like one. That wasn't the first time I was in the studio, but that was the first time I was in a big-time studio, you know? Mm, right, right. And he wasn't too impressed with us, you know. I remember Jimmy, you know, he, he kind of looked at Jimmy and said, what's the big deal with these guys, you know? Now, yeah. Roy's a good friend of mine. I don't want you to think that I hold it against him, although I did for a little while, but we've since, you know, I don't, you know, I didn't feel like I played that well, and I was kind of like, well, I really let us down. And, you know, we were on such a tight budget yeah. that we really couldn't, uh, we couldn't, you know, do ten, like, so many takes, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but, we, but we listened to it two weeks later, and lo and behold, damn, it sounded a lot better. Man, in fact, it sounded really good. <laughs> you know, it just goes, you know, he, I wasn't, it was that old story of the first time you hear your voice on record or the first time you hear yourself playing, it's pretty scary. Right. But but I can tell you that from that point on, we got better and better and better and better as we got more comfortable in the studio. And mm-hmm. by the time we finished that record, well, well, God, we were tearing it up, you know, and yeah. and and even that cut. When I listen to that cut today, it's still got, it's still magical, you oh, know. It is, yeah. So uh, a lot of you know the, the answer to your question was, you know, did we realize? And had no idea that what we were going to do was going to reverberate for four, it was going to resonate forty four years later, yeah. you know. And I'm, I think what I'm most proud of with my work with Chicago, um, and of the, of the, of the, all the music we've done, was that. It does still sound fresh and great 44 years later. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. 
Hey, Danny, in order for us to clearly understand where you, where you are now as a musician, as an artist um, and drummer, you know, it's really important for uh, us and our listeners to know um, where you're from and uh, even before you joined uh, Chicago. Now, you were really born in and raised in Chicago, and uh, and uh, you, you quit school a little early, as we know. Um, and uh, But soon after that, you began studying percussion pretty, pretty heavily and formally with a few key instructors, but... Uh, and and that sort of led you to, to DePaul University. Tell us about that time when you were, you know, at the growing stage and you were starting to get your chops. Uh, what was happening right around that time? Well, I was um, I was running with street gangs, a street gang, and it was really a pretty dangerous one. Mm-hmm. And I was heading. I quit school. Uh, I, I was heading in a really running with a really rough crowd, Italians. You know, Irish, Polish, mostly, you know, mm-hmm. mostly Italians and Irish. And I mean, I, I could always, I mean, I, I, drums were what my calling was, and I always knew that, but I was so frustrated because uh, most of the kids my age, and, and I don't say this egotistically, but it's just a fact, weren't as good as I was, you know, yeah, right. or as, as, as developed or as advanced without, you know, it's just a, a really natural for my age. And, and so I went and tried out for that band. Uh, Jimmy, a band called Jimmy Ford and the Executives. It was it was Dick Clark's road band, hmm. and you know, say has it that Walter Perizader and Terry Cass were also in that band. They were in the band before I was there. You know, a year year and a half before I was there. So oh, wow. that connected me with them, and that immediately pulled me off the street. You know, mm-hmm. and from that point on, that was nineteen um, sixty five or sixty four. Yeah. Yeah, so it had to be 64, uh-huh. yeah. And you know, I was about 16, a little under 16 years old, 16 mm-hmm. and a half. I, I, from that point on, I made my living as a musician. And so I was kind of a rock, natural. I, I, was, I, I learned to play naturally playing the Gene Krupa records, you know, uh, the Gene Krupa story. Sure. Right. And then I started playing the rock things. And, you know, like, like so many other drummers, you know, Ringo had somewhat of an influence, Dino Donnelli. You know, and then and then it was Hal Blaine and Buddy Rich yeah. and Gene Krupa. You know, Gene Krupa was a huge influence on me, and Buddy was huge. And and, and then I got hooked up with uh, uh, Bob Phyllis, who was the head of percussion at DePaul, and he came to hear me play one night because you know uh, our horn players went to DePaul and they had told him about me. Okay. So he came to hear me, and and he, he, we performed "I'm a Man." Of course, it was a, it was just a club version without the drum solo, uh-huh. and he, he he transcribed it, and he showed it to me. He said, "Do you realize you just played this?" And I looked at it, <laughs> and I did a little bit of reading then, but I I, I and he, I said, "Wow, that's complicated." He said, "Yeah, it is." You know, he said, "You're really something special," and he said, "I'd like you to, I'd really like to take you under my wing and 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 you know, show open you open you up to more, you know." more different some jazz and mm-hmm. big band and yeah classical yeah and so that that I, I I took him up on his offer and I became like his private prodigy you know his private his private project right mm-hmm. and he it, it that changed my life so much for the better you know and changed me as a, and it really transformed me into a really true musician and and there, you know there's a difference between a good player a great player and then also a great player and a good musician right it, 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 a good musician, you know, plays the dynamics and, and can play all the styles of music, you know, equally well. And sure, I have my strong points, which is jazz and rock. Right. But I could play other things all of a sudden, and and, it, and I could read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and really, you know, uh, and because reading has always been a problem for me because I'm dyslexic and, and, and ADD. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not a great reader. I'm not even a great reader today. But I I did when I was bullshitting extensively. I got really good. Yeah. So, but it really just changed me and. And elevated my playing from what what I would consider a good funk and a good rock player yeah. to to my jazz rock, where I became like a like a pioneer. I, I was always exploring and, and pushing the envelope and and and, and, and finding ways to fuse um, my my you know jazz and big band and Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and Alvin Jones and Tony Williams and you know into my playing into the Chicago. And then, of course, we put Chicago together with Paul Perisader and Terry Kapp in 1967. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of where, I, I don't know if I answered more than what you were asking. No, that's but fine. That's fine. Me going, it's hard to stop me. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> 
Hey, Danny, you, you've, uh, in, in the course of your career, um, you, you've seen it all when it comes down to drumming and drumming technology. And uh, let's touch on this just a little bit, but probably you've played every single kind of kid out there at some time. And, but can you talk about the evolution of drumming and how sort of you personally rode that wave? I mean, from the acoustic drums to the digital triggers and the Lin drum and then back to acoustics today, so and now into the dance music and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how did your music adapt to what, you know, drumming during your career was throwing at you? Oh, it was, well, you know, I I don't know what the exact year the Lin hit the market, but it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It was a terrible... It was the te- uh, keyboard players and producers were, were were treating us like dirt. Right. And they were making, you know, there was a period of time where it looked like we were going to be replaced. And, and right. we were replaced for a short period of time, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. during some of the disco stuff. And sure. Just, you know, uh, the 80s drum machine stuff. And uh, it, it changed, it changed, you know, for me and a lot of other guys for the worst. But we, it, it actually galvanized the drum community. And I think so. I think it was a, you know, it was a blessing in disguise, and, and, and the state of the art of drumming has never been better. I mean, I, and, you know, now it's kind of gone full circle where, yeah, you know, most cases they really like the sound of, you know, real drums because they breathe, there's more air, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. more feeling. And, yeah, I mean, there's some really, you know, there's some great triggering effects, and, 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 the, and the technology has gotten a lot better uh, with electronic drums, um, mm-hmm. even though I use primarily and extensively, I use um, acoustic drums. But I, I you know, I, I got heavy into it in, during the '80s. You know, uh, working with David Foster, I got very heavy into triggers, and mm-hmm. I had this really elaborate. Because I said, Dan, if I'm going to let the keyboard players do all the playing, <laughs> at least if I can program, then a drummer will program it. And, exactly. And so, and you can hear you can hear that on Chicago 17 and 18, especially, which yeah. really, I think I played live drums on one thing. Yeah. You know, the rest of it was all programmed. And then we went back to acoustic drums on, on 19, which was my last record with the band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So, so for for the drummers out there, you know, tell us um, today, how do you approach your tuning on your kits? Has that uh, changed over the years and and at different points of your music? How do you approach your tuning? Well, it really hasn't changed uh-huh. um, in a sense. But but been using VW drums, uh, they tune so well that um, you know I just uh, I, I I love them. I love playing them. I mean they're 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 inspiring to me, and they hold their tuning, yeah. you know, really better than my, you know, uh, I do love vintage drums, and I, I love my Slingelin drums and my yep. Gretsch, old Gretsch, but, you know, the new, the new DWs, you know, the different, all the different shell configurations and uh, the maple mahogany and the uh, cherry wood, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, all the different, you know, uh, it's just amazing what they do, and they keep getting better and better. So I think the... The, the newer acoustic drums, the high end, you know, the high end, even some of the mid ends, like the mid level DWs, sound great and yeah, they record right. great. And, and I know that's true of really across the board. All of them have really up, DW kind of up the bar, and mm-hmm. everybody else is kind of following suit. You know. Yeah, I was curious about when you travel. Um, do you take a, a drum tech on the road with you, or how much do you rely on them if you're doing a session on the road, or or um you know, or even in studio. Do you, do you rely on a drum tech or do you just do it all yourself? Well, I'm in the studio, I have a drum tech. Yeah. And when I'm live, if I'm local, I have a drum tech. But, uh-huh. you know, quite often, um, I get a, I, I do get a drum tech in, uh, you know. You pick somebody I up do, local. In my rider, I require them to have someone to help me with my drums and drum tech. And, but I, quite often I play back playing gear. You yeah. know, it's not ideal. Um, but that's just the nature of the business today. Unless you're out on a big, big tour, which you know, it's my band CTA. Unfortunately, well, we aren't really in that level yet. Hopefully, that will change. You know, but uh, generally, in the studio, a drum tech. Yeah. On the road, I get a local guy. Sometimes he's a drummer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's a backline guy. Mm-hmm. You know. So. Okay. You know, I, you know, I got to be honest with you. I hate setting up the band. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that for sure? <laughs> Sometimes I won't take a gig if they're not going to pay, just pay just enough for, 
you know, local gig, whatever, <laughs> even if it's a charity gig, please. You, you know, I mean, boy, I'm glad to play for free, but you've got to have somebody set up and turn exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you get for the, I know it's terrible. Yeah. Hey, so how do you take it when you're, you know, you're named, you know, uh, you know, you're bestowed an, an amazing award or a, a named a Rolling Stones top 100 drummers of all times, and and you know the Lifetime Achievement Awards like at Montreal, Breton, and other festivals. Uh, how do you accept uh, these these acclaims? Do they matter much to you, or how do you take that? Well, I, I'm very very um, honored. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean the the uh, the Cape Breton Lifetime Achievement along with you know Montreal were really great honors and. I was just really touched, you know, and I think um, you have to, I mean, you can't really take that for granted. I right. It's just, I, I think you start taking that stuff for granted and you're, and, and I don't know, I see, I see people do that. And that's just being young, you know, and dumb, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I just look at like, you know, that I've, I've really been, been lucky and, you know, I just I'm really really thankful. Yeah. Thankful for the great things that have come my way. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I just I just have to look at it like, you know, I've been blessed, and I and I, you know, I don't want to lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's too easy to to get jaded, and you know, uh, whatever your reasoning is, you know, whether you've been messed over or passed over, and or this guy who you think is better than you gets more credit or and so on and so forth. I think that, I, I, I just think that, you know, I've been very blessed and I, I can't take it for granted, and nor right. do I. Right. Well, we've got a, a series of questions coming up here that kind of pertain to Chicago, and then we're going to, after that, we're going to dive into your, uh, your most uh, recent album with CTA, California Transit Authority, called Sacred Ground. But these next uh, questions uh, regarding Chicago are coming from our Inside Music Cast correspondents. And the first one here is from Max Zape, who uh, works with us, and he's down in San Diego. And he wanted to know, he said, going back to the early days of Chicago Transit Authority, what are your memories of working with uh, Jim Garcio at the Caribou Ranch Studio? Well, the memories are, are uh, mostly good. I mean, it was, it was really it was an exciting time for the band. You know, we uh, we made it, so to speak, and you know, we were kind of living the dream, so to speak, even though it didn't feel like a dream. Yeah. You know, we were we were living the dream, and we, uh, you know, I would love. I kept a horse up there, so it was a really cool life. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we had a lot of fun, and it was a lot of. You know, we were pretty much stuck at one thing or other. You up in, in those days, it was, you know, we'd have to, if we wanted to get out, we'd try to make a last call down in Boulder and barely make it, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe enough to have, like, a glass of wine or a beer and just, you know, get, just to get out amongst people because we'd be we'd be buried there for, you know, weeks at a time, you know, trying to, you know, trying to top whatever we were doing. So, um, it, it was a... You know, there were many great, great songs that were cut up there. Chicago 7, I think, is the most notable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many great, you know. Chicago 11 was also, we take me back to Chicago and Little One. Yeah, right. That's actually the last, I believe, the last record we cut up there. And, yeah, I mean, that was a great time for me because I was really starting to step out as a major contributor. Well, I mean, Chicago 7, I contributed pretty strong on that. But Chicago 11, um, you know, with the little one, Prelude to Little One, Air. Well, Air, Air is on 7, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that Chicago was on 11. And, uh, you know, Secure Ranch was, it was a blast. You know, it was a blast. It was like I say, it was like, yeah, it was like living the dream for sure. <laughs> right, right, right. We've got another uh, correspondent uh, named Uwe Reith, and he's over in Constance, Germany. Um, and he, he wants to know, um, you know, when did you feel that you personally were performing at your highest level during your tenure with Chicago, and, and, and what did you do to keep keep your chops up during that time? Hmm. Well, I, 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 you know, I, I felt like that in the first and second record. You know, third record started to droop. I, I guess what I, would, what I would do is I would usually find somebody to study with. If I felt like I needed to be challenged, you know, yeah. And I would like, uh, for instance, I studied with, uh, when I first came out to California, I studied with Chuck Flores. 
Okay. And then great fine jazz drummer and, and t- teacher, but really played with Woody Herman and also played with a bunch of really, 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 really great player. Mm-hmm. And he, we worked on my foot technique and jazz feel, you know, enhancing, you know, my jazz uh, knowledge and chops. And and then a bit down the road, I, I started studying with Papa Joe Jones in New York City okay. uh, for brush technique and just, again, um, Again, trying trying just to, to push the envelope and, and, and push the horizon, mm-hmm. um, and and that's kind of what I would do generally. And you know, uh, when I get into a, a lull or a rut, that's I would try to. Get, it's like it's like hiring a it's like an athlete hiring a trainer. You know, to whip them in shape. Yep, absolutely. So that's that's kind of what I would do. Mm-hmm. Terry Kath, he was your bandmate, a friend, a personal, uh, you know, a phenomenal musician. You know, how did this connection with him, um, how did that influence you as a musician uh, and as a person? Oh, God, you know, was, uh, we were, like, real, so close, you know, in so many respects, you know, that, that especially musically, that we really thought alike, you know. We thought alike in the sense of in musically, you know. Mm-hmm, and th- there wasn't much we didn't agree on musically. We, you know, he, you know we, we, you can hear it in the playing, in the jamming, mm-hmm. you know, um, he he always pushed me, you know, like the guitar player I'm with now, Mark Bonilla, he pushes me to be better, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and I hope, and hopefully I do the same, you know? It's kind of a rela- the relationship of, of a cre- I feel, truly creative people, you know, that yeah. they, they push themselves to be better. They bring out the best in one another. Like a good marriage, so to speak, you know? But that would be how it, I guess he would describe Terry, I think, is he... He, he he really made everybody else around him sound better besides being an amazing player and musician in person. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, about a year and a half ago, Eddie and I interviewed uh, his daughter, Michelle, and uh, she's oh, been, wonderful. I don't yeah. know if, if you know what she was doing, but she's been putting together a um, a documentary about her father. Uh, I guess he used to shoot a lot of uh, eight millimeter film when you guys were on the road. And um uh, they, she found boxes and boxes of this stuff, and she's right. she's been trying to get you know this cut together. And uh, I haven't talked to her in a while. As a matter of fact, I sent her a message last night thinking about it, and I'm curious to know where she is with that. But hopefully, we can connect with her soon and find out if that's mm-hmm. going to be coming out soon because it sounds pretty fascinating. Great. Yeah, I just I just did an interview with her, a long one, which was you know I was really glad I did it with her. It was very emotional, very emotional. Was yeah. that so for? It was really good. Was that for yeah. her documentary? Yes, we're oh. the document. Right oh, here. very cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. We're glad that it's moving ahead. Yeah. yeah. Hey, another question from uh, Uwe Reith in Konstanz, Germany. He said, he goes, he was curious to know why you were replaced on Stay the Night by Jeff Beccaro and you're the inspiration by Carlos Vega because he said they don't appear in the liner notes on Chicago 17. Well, it was a, <laughs> it was a pretty unpleasant experience with David Foster. Mm-hmm. Um, David and I, we, we got along really great on the first album. Mm-hmm. We did together, which was Chicago 16. And during the negotiations, the business negotiations, because I was kind of really in the thick of that with for the band and with our management, and David and I locked horns. And I, I just think that he, he kind of had a grudge. At that point, he had a grudge thing. And I was... My wife at the time, that's my second wife, Teddy, was diagnosed with uh, what they thought was either Hodgkin's disease oh. or Epstein-Barr. It turned oh. out to be Epstein-Barr, but could have Hodgkin's disease or lymphoma. Okay. And so I, right before we were going to start Chicago 17, we, you know, we had great, we, you know, 16, was a, was a great success. Mm-hmm. Was a huge comeback. Right. So, uh, you know, right before we were going to go in the studio, I asked him. My my wife. I at, at that time I had a house in Hawaii. Okay. So the doctor had, had had recommended she have, you know, like six to eight weeks, you know, twelve weeks of complete rest. Sure. Yeah. So I sent her. I sent her there with her sister, and you know I was kind of at home with the kids and a babysitter and someone to help with because I was obviously working in the studio or about to and I asked David if I could take a week to go to Hawaii to be with her. And he said, Sure, no problem. Well I went to Hawaii and you know it's about the time with her and it was it was good. It was really you know, I needed to do that. But I had a lot on my mind and it was not it was a very tough you know, you can imagine it was a kind of a scary thing for, yeah, for myself and for my wife. Yeah. At the time. 
And I came back, and a friend of mine calls me and says, Hey, what's this I hear Dave Jeff McCarl's in the studio playing on your track? And I went, What? No one had ever played drums on a Chicago track. Yeah. No one. No. So I, I, I go into the studio, and there, lo and behold, I, there's Jeff Carl playing on, on Stay the Night. Uh-huh. I, I never they never heard the song, or they had a, this, a lame excuse saying that uh, Jeff had a set of Simmons, and they wanted to just hear him on the on the track. And I was livid. I was livid, <laughs> and it just just blew my mind because one, I was so vulnerable, you know. Yeah. I couldn't believe David did that. You know, David. David is really. I, I tell you, he's a brilliant guy, but he's he's about as mercenary as they come. I mean, he just is. He just will do whatever it takes, and 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 that's why he's successful. And I give him that credit. And maybe that's why we were successful with him. But I don't. I don't think it really had to come to that. So, in anyways, uh, David. At, also, Dave. At that point, David was putting everything to a click, and I really had never. None of the early Chicago stuff was ever to a click. Nothing. Nothing. None right. of it. Yeah. So and I wasn't that experienced at playing with a click, so um, you know that's that might have been why he, he you know I, mean, I you know I I wasn't as fast in the studio as, as Jeff was. Obviously Jeff was a was a studio guy and was and lived in the studio. He was a great drum. He was a great drummer. Yeah, had a great drum part, but it certainly is one I could have played. And would I played it exactly the same? Probably not. Would I played it as well? You know, no one will ever know. I mean, and and it just what happened was is my relationship with David spiraled from there. I mean, it really spiraled. We it yeah. really got nasty. Yeah, I was so angry with him and hurt, and and I felt completely betrayed by everybody, the band, him, and you know. And, but David would, was doing that with a lot of people, and, and with the band, he was replacing the parts, and I mean, that was kind of you know, in defense of David. That's what was going on in the studio in those days. You know, they were bringing in all these ringers, and you know, uh, and and it was really to me, it was it really kind of soured the experience, especially for that record. So I, by the time that happened, I completely lost confidence in my playing. I thought I felt like like I was getting second guessed, and you know, when you're when everybody's around you, and I could see him talking about me while I was in the studio. I mean, he was you know, it was really nasty. And it was it really got ugly between him and I. I can say that yeah. really ugly. And we're, we're okay now. I mean, you know, because yeah. I realized part of it. I, I might have overreacted, but you know, how else was I, You know, how would <laughs> you know how else could I react? You know what I mean? Yeah, and, um, yeah it was your band. <laughs> it, it really was. Yeah, it was, it was my band. Yeah. It, I mean, it was it was all of our bands. But you know, I, right, did, right. I had a, it was like it was it was really an important part of my life. In fact, you know, sure. My, I pretty much dedicated my life to, to the band since I had, you know, since we had put it together in '67. So it was, it was traumatic. Yeah. Uh, it just threw my confidence, and and I couldn't at that point. I could hardly walk in the studio with him. Um, they tried to. I tried to play "You're the Inspiration." And God knows this is a song I should be able to play in my sleep, and I couldn't even play that. I was just. Yeah. I was just completely. It it just completely humil- humiliated me and. Uh, Wow, you know, yeah. brought me to my knees, so to speak. You know, everything happens for a reason. I'm a better person for all of this, and I, and also a better drummer. But right. I was, you know, uh, I, I that was. I don't feel like I deserved that. But you know, everything happens for a reason. And those they were super successful. Could I have played those songs? Yeah, sure, for sure. Yeah. Could I played them as well? Yeah, for sure. I sure I could have. Yep. Would I have taken a little bit longer? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, but you know, but don't you think that uh, you know if. You know, at that point, he was just—he just wanted to make the songs as good as possible, and and uh, he didn't really care what at what expense it was. And and, mm-hmm. and at that point, the expense was really uh, my relationship with his, him, and you know, but the band guys and I were okay. But yeah, it was uh, that was a tough one. Um, yeah, well, chalk that up for experience and chalk <laughs> that up for life. And you know, yeah. um, you know they say whatever doesn't kill you makes you better, and I—I I, I gotta believe that made me better. That's true. Well, let's move on to some uh, lighter questions. Um, this this next one is from Don Brightup, uh, who's a correspondent of ours from uh, Los Angeles, and uh, by way of Toronto, actually. And, and Chicago, he says, had multiple writers, including yourself. And he wanted to know if you could describe the process of, say, one member coming in uh, with a new song and the band crafting uh, an arrangement in rehearsal. Well, um, you know, the process would be, and it was different for different writers, like Robert Lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, in those days, he, I would say he, he brought in just basically a skeleton, but it was like a rough draft, and then he would give it to the guys, uh-huh. 
And and he was really smart in the fact that he utilized everybody's strengths that way, where everybody contributed a lot, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was generous that way, and he and he was he was the benefit of so many great performances. Twenty-five and six to four. Beginnings. Does anybody know what time it is? It's question sixty-seven, sixty-eight. Sure. Uh, you know, Saturday in the park, and you know, it's, it's he didn't. He wasn't rigid about. He kind of let let it let it organically happen within the band, and and that that's that was his brilliance. I mean, uh-huh. he, he wrote some really really incredible songs, mm-hmm. and Jimmy was a little more rigid, but uh, again, similar. We would we would basically put our stamp our DNA on the song, and same thing with Peter and uh, myself. Um, you know, we'd have certain things that we wanted a certain way, mm-hmm. but the rest of it was really kind of left up, and if that person had a better idea, which quite often, let's face it, um, I, would, I would think that my drum ideas were probably better than, than, than Jimmy's would be in most cases, but I still would try to capture what he wanted, yeah. but if I really disagreed with him, which sometimes I did, or in anybody, I'd really push for my my part. Kind of in a follow up to that question, um, and this this uh, question comes from Scott Sheriff. You know Scott, right, from Nashville. He's got a tri- yes. he's got a tribute band called Make Me Smile, and I think you sat in with him uh, a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, that was at my drum clinic, yeah. 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 Well, he says, um, Scott's, Scott's question is, he says, I know songs can be like children, you know, hard hard to play favorites, but is there a particular Chicago song you wrote that stands out in your mind or that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, yeah, I mean, Street Player is one. Yeah. I would say Street Player, but there's others, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm proud of, I'm not, I don't write a lot. Yeah. So that when I do, when I do write and it really comes out good, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of them all, but Street Player is one that I was, really particularly proud and it's really turned out to be you know a great you know a, a great um, you know kind of it's been a great gift that keeps giving you yeah. know, it's been sampled it was at first when I first wrote it it was a big stiff and a, and a, and a flop yep. and in fact it was the biggest stiff in the history of Chicago you know, I mean, it was you're you're right. It was it was sampled, uh, gee whiz, by a a few people. I mean, Pitbull did it. I think the Bucketheads they uh, they they sampled your music too. So these tracks and the and the hooks. I mean, it's uh, pretty impressive how those things could sort of be in demand. Those hooks, right? It was like God's way of saying to you, Danny. You wrote a great song, <laughs> right? I had to, I had to, I had to slam it down because you got ahead of yourself, and yeah. we're, we're, you know, we're like practically rehearsing Grammy speeches and everything, and and I decided to slap you down yeah. and put you in your place. But you know, I have to, you know, I had to say, have to give you your just to do, just do some version was so big, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, well, it was. Yeah, well, you wrote that actually. With I was going to ask you about another collaborating partner that you've worked with, and that's Hawk uh, Wolinski, and uh, who is mostly known basically for his work with uh, um, Shaka Khan and Rufus. But he did, didn't you write uh, Street Player with him, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that I wrote Street Player, Take Me Back to Chicago. Yeah. Um, little one. Uh, there's a couple of others we wrote together. We we write very Aloha Mama. We, we've written you know quite a few. Think good things together. Yeah, Hawk is Hawk is a Hawk's a character, dude. He's such a character. I love him. If you ever get a chance to interview him, you would love it. You should do an interview with him. Yeah, it would be great to have him. You would enjoy talking to him. You'd have to turn the machine off for a while and rest it. (laughs) Right. You would you would love talking to him. He's a character. He's got you know he's a really brilliant guy, brilliant artist. But uh, yeah, I I loved working with Hawk. Was like the perfect foil for me. You know, Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, he really. You know, he took my lyrics, made them better. You know, and he, you know, we we really worked well together. You know, on on every on every level. And yeah. the same thing is true with Mark Benia. You know, with my new band. Yeah. What, an, what an amazing musician he is. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, uh, yeah. in, in 2010, uh, Danny, you uh, you published your your brutally honest memoir, Street Player, My Chicago Story. And um, I'm sure you, you want to tell us uh, all, all to get your book and, to exp- and your, so we can read about your experiences and of uh, your tenure with Chicago and your career. And But is there one thing that you can tell our, our IMC listeners are, uh, from your book? Maybe it's the, you know, your story about Led Zeppelin or the Beach Boys or just a small morsel. Give us a little sneak peek as to what they can expect from your book. Well, 
uh, I was I, I was just doing some excerpts, so I have one in in my mind. Is okay. uh, you know early on you know early on in our career, but we were we had already kind of arrived after Make Me Smile. We were playing arenas, and we had a we had an opening act by the name of Bruce Springsteen. And uh, he, yeah, he he, was, he he opened for us for about fourteen shows, and um, we had heard great things about him, and, and he was great. I mean, he was, was, but our fans did not like him at all. Yeah, and it was, and it was like he was bombing terribly. It was, you know, I couldn't, you know, it was terrible night after night to watch him not get any response, you know, yeah, right. at, at all to to. Uh, with any of his, his songs uh-huh. and any any of his performance, and it was like boom. Uh, it drove him. I think it drove him underground for five years as far as playing big venues. And when he reemerged, uh, I saw him years later. He reemerged. Man, he was a he was good then, but but he was like man, he was so dynamic. It was no stopping him. So uh, you know that's that's a pretty cool story. Uh, that's one, and you know there's there's a bunch of others. Yeah. There's many other yeah. Well, tell you what, let's dive in and talk about your latest uh, California Transit Authority release, which is titled Sacred Ground. And, and Eddie and I have listened through this album from start to finish at least a few dozen times since it came out. You know, I guess it was back in April. And you know, I'll admit that this album really flows well from track to track. I mean, you just hit play and let it go. And um, it's it's pretty remarkable how it really just it just has a great flow from start to finish. Oh, thank you. You know, it's a labor of love. <clears throat> uh, three years in the making. Yeah. Um, you know, I couldn't have done it. I really couldn't have done it with any of the guys in the band, but especially Mark Bonilla. Mark mm-hmm. is, yeah, uh, he's he's brilliant. Yeah, and and so is Ed Roth. You know, I mean, Peter Fish. Uh, I'm surrounded by greatness in this band. It's, it's really <laughs> right. Um, I'm very lucky. I'm yeah. very lucky to be working with these guys, and you know, um, I think we're lucky to be working with each other. You know, we just need to get this record out and yeah. Um, into more people's hands and on the radio if we can, and so so the band can can work and and really spread the music, you know. Absolutely. Well, it's funny you said that because Eddie and I just before the interview started, we were talking about your band and how this is, you know, and in, in it's in essence, it's an all star lineup. I mean, it's a really talented you know group of guys. And talking about the flow of the album that I just mentioned a second ago, and to me, what's a little surprising about the flow is that there are so many different musical styles represented on Sacred Ground. I mean, if you if you looked at, you know, kind of a visual roadmap of the style of music from track <laughs> to track, you might look at this as kind of a patchwork and not very cohesive. But when you listen, it all makes sense. And it's beautiful. And it's really arranged, you know, really well as a whole. Very nice. Well, thank you. I, I very much appreciate it. And a lot of work and thought and and heart and, you know, heart and soul in that, that, piece, that piece of work. Thank you. Well, you know, CTA's first album, Full Circle, was released back in 2007. And, and when did you start planning this second album? And, and I think you second ago, it took you three years to record it. But were you writing longer than that? Or, or, you know, I mean, was it just that three-year period where you really concentrated on it? Well, three years. We, uh, a lot of it was written in the studio on the spot. I mean, when they say in the studio on the spot, excuse me, in Mark's studio, we all get, the four of us to get together, myself, Mark, Ed, and Nick Mahan, and we start jamming and um, with ideas. Ed would have a uh, you know kind of rough outline of a song or mark, and we would then take it and just elaborate and take it places that <laughs> he never ever anticipated it would go. And, um, and it kind of evolved from that. It just a little bit took shape. And you know, I asked Peter to do an arrangement of "Take Me Back to Chicago," which he did. He did a beautiful arrangement of that. And Peter and I had started full circle obviously for the first record, Full Circle, and couldn't finish it for the life of me, couldn't finish it. And uh, lo and behold, I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't understand why I couldn't finish it, so we released Full Circle without it. And then Mark Benia, uh took a look at it and listened to it and said, you know, that song's got a lot of possibilities. Why don't we try this and try that? And he, he made some changes, lyrical and melodic and, and, and uh, you know, melody-wise, but more, you know, more structure and, and direction. And we we updated it, and it turned out to be a great song. And as it, as it ended up, my former bandmate and used to be my enemy, Bill Champlin. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, seriously, Bill and I were. Yeah. There's a guy I never ever ever thought I would ever talk to again. Yeah. And it's a really really it's a wonderful story because it just taught me. Um. It, it taught me that forgiveness is is a, is a really powerful emotion and tool. 
and it, it's not only helps the person that you're forgiving, but it helps you yourself because some, you know we've all done things we're not proud of either, and and need to be forgiven. Yeah, and you know it's it's a whole there's a whole spiritual thing that really helped both Bill and I, you know, and we're really good friends now and good yeah. working together and enjoy working together. And um, hopefully someday um, the ba- rest of the band and myself, I'm, I'm good friends. I'm, I'm friends with Peter. I wouldn't say we're really good friends. It's not that we're not friends. You just basically don't really talk much or we don't do any music together. Once in a while, we'll, he'll come in town, we'll play golf, and yeah. we have a lot of laughs. But we don't really work together, although, you know, I would love to play with Peter, but he, he has different, you know, he, he's not really into it. I don't know why yeah. exactly, but... Uh, if you ever interview him, maybe he'll tell you. Um, he's he's a really guy. He's a good guy. He's a great talent. I mean, one of the best singers of all time, in my opinion, in pop music, and and a great bass player. Unfortunately, he doesn't play bass anymore. Yeah. Well, we've had we've had Bill Champlin on the show twice now, and he's he's such a great guy to talk to. He's he's one of the funniest cats. I, we just <laughs> we he's, just we he's just very talk. funny. I yeah. know he's got a great sense of humor, you know. <laughs> Especially he really thinks he's got a great sense of humor. <laughs> 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 I, 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 and I laugh at him. I look at him. Oh my God, Bill! Do I got to put up with? Do I have to live with these jokes for for a tour? And he laughs. And, so we have a good. We really have a good time together, and and I feel good about that. I feel. You know, one of the things, one of the things about this record that I'm really proud of and happy is that Bill and I have come back together and, yeah. you know, kind of patched that, that sense, mended that sense and, you know, creating music again. Yeah, it's it's funny. This is the second uh, our last interview we had was with Tom Saviano. Do you know Tom? Yes, I do. Yeah, he, we, nice had, guy. we had the Great same. Guy. Yeah, we had the same conversation about Bill and that. And <laughs> it's not, you know his humor. He's such a funny dude. But <laughs> you know, one of the songs uh, that Eddie and I love from Sacred Ground is a song that features Bill Champlin on vocals, and it's called Full Circle. So let's take a quick break and let's check it out from our guest today, Danny Serafin.
hardly hide to see myself Face to face and clear It's simple now I'm looking back The promised land was always here talked a lot about the band already you know you've mentioned mark bonilla quite a bit on guitar you've got ed harris roth and peter fish on keys wes quave and will champlin on vocals and travis davis on bass and you know i was looking at um you know the rest of on the rest of the album and there, there's there's uh there's some uh talent there that um that you bring in a special guest that just makes this even deeper and you brought in some you know some real ringers as special guests and one of my very favorite vocalists in the in the world is larry braggs and i caught him back in in the 90s with tower of power and he, he you know he, he's amazing and tell us how you got larry involved in this project we got connected at the very front end of this band. Mark and I had connected at a, at a jam session uh-huh. and decided we, were, we wanted to do something together. And Peter Fish and I were trying to put a big rock big band together, which, we, you know, by, by Coastal is pretty tough, you know? So um, Mark, uh, Troy Lucchetta, the drummer with Tesla, uh, okay. contacted Mark, and they, they were doing a, a benefit concert for a photojournalist by the name of Melissa Whale, who had uh, um, leukemia and needed a bone marrow transplant okay. definitely. So the, all the drummers, uh, the modern drummer, modern drummer kind of was the lead organizer and, uh, and, a, and a promoter out of Phoenix by the name of Danny Zalisco, and they put together a benefit concert, and, and Troy said, well, Troy asked, Troy asked me if I wanted to do it, and he had talked to Mark, and Mark, Mark got in touch with me and said, why don't we do this, Danny? I said, and we can perform I'm a Man and 25 or 6 to 4, and he said, I have a really cool idea arrangement for... Um, make me smile. I said, cool. And, 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 you know, obviously David Garibaldi was one of the drummers on the, on the show. And so Larry Braggs had, had volunteered to come perform on the show and sing the, the Tower of Power stuff. So Mark talked to Larry about singing. Uh, Mark was going to play guitar on that, that and, and, and with David. So Mark talked to to Larry and after he'd seen the Chicago stuff, which he agreed to, and yeah. and it was just it was just amazing. You know, yeah. he, he brought a, I mean, he brought the R and B that strong R and B thing, and he's got the range of a Peter Cetera. I mean, Larry's got a three active range, which I'm sure you know. So yeah, it, that's where that's where I first met Larry, and it's it's you know, if Larry of all the people we have we've, we've had with the band, Larry's probably the the most complete uh, yeah. with range and 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 moves and front man moves and. And soul, you know, of everybody, everyone we've had, anyone we've had. So, you know, Larry. Now that he, you know he's leaving Tower Power, I don't know if you know that. Yeah, we did hear yeah. that. But, uh, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna be singing with us a lot more, hopefully. That's um, cool. You know, cool. I'd love to have Larry on as a full time. <clears throat> and if we we get this thing stoked up hot enough, there's a good chance that that may happen. Um, That's awesome. Larry, Larry's a good friend of the band's, and we love him. Yeah. Keeping the topic here with uh, Larry Braggs, um, and something I mentioned earlier in the uh, in the chat is that you know this album contains 
a bunch of different styles of, of tunes. I mean, it's not just a uh, it's not just a Chicago sound alike type of album, but like I said, it has a variety of, of styles. And uh, one of the tracks that I think is could be like an instant classic from from Sacred Ground is a track that Larry Braggs sings, and it's called "I Love You More Than You'll Ever Know." It's just a fantastic tune. <laughs> Out of the park, I know. He hits it out of the park on that one. Well, this song has the heart of a classic 60s R&B tune with, you know, kind of a, a touch of electric blues in that. Mark Bonilla guitar solo is, is killer. I know. Yeah, yeah. That's a phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. It's, well, Mark <laughs> and I are both really proud of it. I mean, it was, uh, yeah. and Al Cooper liked it too. Just uh, add a little side note. Yeah, it's very neat. Well, Danny, we want to take a break, and uh, let's give our listeners a chance to check out this amazing song that features Larry Braggs on vocals, and this is I Love You More Than You'll Ever Know. Just a tiny grain of sand 
So when you bring guys like Bill and, and Larry into a special guest on, on this project, how deeply do they really get involved with the song that they're, um, they're assigned to? I mean, do they uh, help in the creative development? Uh, what, what do they add? What kind of, uh, of their own ingredient of their vocals uh, do they add, um, you know, their own touches? Or how do they contribute to their tracks? Well, you know, these guys, these guys are really, really incredible singers. So you basically put them in the studio and you let them go. And you, you try to leave them alone as much as possible. You give them a few guidelines and and and, and parameters, maybe. Or if they t- start getting a little too far away from the melody that you might want, maybe you might say something. But other than that, you leave them alone. And that's how you get the best. As far as the development of the song, generally those two songs were already recorded and, uh, you know, pretty well formulated, but... You know, Bill came in and changed some melody things and added some stuff. And uh-huh. same thing with Larry, especially you know, I mean, I love you more than you'll ever know. So yeah, I mean, he took some liberty. He took some, you know, he took it to some places that that's never been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Obviously, you have such deep roots with you know your tenure with Chicago, and there are, you know several tracks on Sacred Ground that certainly have a a solid foundation of that you know classic late '60s, early '70s Chicago sound. And personally, you know, I feel. Uh, you know what CTA brings to the table captures, really captures the essence of what Chicago was all about in the early going. And the horn charts uh, on a few of these songs are just insane. You know, like Prime Time and In the Kitchen and and Staring at the Sun. They just suck you in. And I, I'm so glad. You know, I think we mentioned this earlier. I'm so glad that music like this is still being made. It's it's phenomenal. Mm, you know, we are too. We just need to. We need more people. We need many, many, many more people like you that feel the same way. And pretty much anybody that really listens to it, you know, like Mark Bonilla did the horns for Primetime and Staring at the Sun, and Peter Fish did uh, In the Kitchen. So, you know, I'm sur- like I said, I'm surrounded by greatness. And um, I-, I couldn't I couldn't ask for better bandmates and people to work with. And, and um, I-, I, wanna- I really desperately want to keep this band uh, viable and you know, working and moving forward and bringing it to the people. And um, that's my mission in life right now. Yeah, very nice. You know, another track that I really love from Sacred Ground is Staring at the Sun. And this track has a great, you know, driving energy and and just a blazing horn chart. And I want to uh, stop real quick and let's take a break and give it a listen. From our guest today, Danny Serafin and the California Transit Authority.
Well, you know, I realize it's probably difficult to tour since, you know, most of the guys in CTA have, have other gigs. And, you know, how extensively do you take this show on the road? I mean, are are the majority of your shows out west? I, I think – actually, I think I just recently saw – maybe it was on your website that you were here in the Midwest for a handful of shows. Yeah, we do. Uh, we, we tour all over. It, it's, you know, we, you know, um, what I want to do is we really need to bust into the festival scene. Everybody will, you know, everybody wants to work. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, sometimes they can't if there's, there's other projects. And sometimes I have to have subs, a sub for one or two of the guys. But the guys, we want to work. You know, we just need to have the, we need to get in the, I think the fair circuit, the, the, yeah. the, the festival circuit, yeah. and, uh, and, 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 and casino casinos uh, and mm-hmm. performing arts centers, you know. If we could do that, you know, clubs, um, not that we don't do well, but, you know, we're more suited towards, uh, uh, like I say, small performing arts centers, festivals, and mm-hmm. casinos. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Danny, uh, t- tell us, uh, you know, where people would be able to purchase the Sacred Ground. Can you get, can they go to, uh, directly to your website uh, f- to, to get it? Well, they could go... The, the website is www.ttatheband.com, mm-hmm. um, or they could go to CD Baby for the physical copy. And okay. by the way, the, the, the vinyl is going to be any day now. The vinyl, the, the vinyl is going to be available for the oh, show. Nice. That's nice. awesome. That's and great. And of course, iTunes, iTunes, Amazon MP3, um, Amazon On Demand. I think there's, that's is one. So you know, iTunes for the digital downloads and cool. uh, CD Baby, and then. Uh, CTATheBand.com, www.ctatheband.com. Wonderful. That's great. Awesome. Well, um, Danny, we could probably sit here and talk to you all day. We've got probably another page full of questions, but I know we, <laughs> we respect your time, and, you know, uh, we're just we're just a couple of, you know, liner notes geeks that, you know, love all this stuff, and, <laughs> and so are our fans. So are the listeners of Inside Music Cast. Absolutely. But we really appreciate the time. You know, and for the listeners out there, please check out this album. It's it's phenomenal. It's, it's fantastic. So, if you guys want to do a part two of this, let's let's, let's do a part two. You know, a few months down the road, when yeah, you know, we should when, definitely. And more than you know, it was a great interview, and I'm happy to do more with you guys. That's yeah, let's awesome. let's, so let's stay job. in touch, and we'll we'll definitely continue to spread the word. Thanks, guys. Danny, Have thanks so day, much huh? for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eddie and Rick. See ya. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Special thanks to Danny Serafin for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, and Don Brydom for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thank you.